Welcome to Waves of Change podcast. I'm your host, Lizzie Lara. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Waves of Change podcast. So happy that you're with us. Today, I have a really exciting interview with Harry Leibowitz from World of Children. Um, World of Children is actually an organization that I used to work for, used to work with Harry. Um, in, a, in a big way, um, World of Children is actually a big inspiration for this podcast. Um, you know, I credit my experience at World of Children for really giving me a lot of great development experience and fundraising experience. I will always look back on my time at World of Children so fondly. It was so fun getting to go to these fancy events in Beverly Hills and New York City and rub elbows with celebrities and C-suite executives and really get an amazing experience. Um, But my favorite part of World of Children was when I got to meet the honorees and meet these people who created organizations from an idea or from a need and really just hear their incredible stories of self-sacrifice of, you know, taking an idea and and making it into an impactful organization. And in large, in a large way, that's, was the idea for this podcast, my love of speaking to founders and learning about how they took an idea and turned it into an impactful organization. So I was really excited that we could have Harry on. Um, As you'll see, Harry is a very great storyteller. I remember the people that came to our events were executives who would have to go to a lot of nonprofit galas and events, but they were always excited to come to ours because they were always excited to hear Harry speak and Harry would bring the crowd to tears very often. Um, So I'm excited that um, you get to experience some of his amazing storytelling. One thing I wanted to point out that we didn't get to in the podcast is the honoree categories that World of Children has. Um, There's education, health, youth, humanitarian, protection, crisis, and hero. And so those are the focus areas in which they would um, find organizations and honor organizations. Um, Two things I also wanted to point out, um, you'll really hear Harry speak about the growth of World of Children and, um, you know, where the organization started and where it's at now. And I think it's a really great story of pivoting and adapting and growing, which all nonprofit organizations need to do. And I think that World of Children really benefited that both Harry and Kay have um, a lot of experience in the business sector and really took those innovative and creative ideas to world of children and made it an organization that was very adaptable. If something wasn't changing, you'll hear, you know, they tried something new. Um, So I wanted to point that out because you'll hear Harry speak about that. And something else I want to point out, and this is just a huge philosophy that I live by, and you'll hear Harry and I speak about this, is just we all have to do something. And you've heard me say that on the podcast before, you know, action over apathy. If we all do something, the world is guaranteed to be a better place. And um, you'll hear that World of Children really takes that philosophy one child at a time. Um, you know, the, the news can be so daunting, statistics can be so daunting, but if we focus in on a certain area and we do something, then things are gonna get better. 
And I think, you know, that's something I live by. And I think it's just so important because it's so much of what this podcast is also about. Um, so I'm going to let you get to it before I do. I just want to let you know some of these stories that Harry tells of, um, you know, what these children have been through are, are a little hard to listen to. So if you have littles around, you might want to just listen to this with your headphones on. And I hope you enjoy. Okay, I'll let you get to it. Harry, I thought we could start off by having you explain what the mission of World of Children is. Uh, the mission of World of Children is to elevate the lives of vulnerable children on a global basis, uh, but doing it through small community-based organizations that already exist around the world. So rather than uh, do our own work, we find those people around the world who are doing the best work for children in their communities. And then we elevate them, we fund them, we educate them, uh, and uh, uh, that's our mission. And can you explain how you first got the idea for World of Children? Well, I've been involved in children's issues uh, most of my life, but uh, in 1996, I had my second bout with cancer. And uh, 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 as I was recuperating from massive surgery and all those horrible chemicals that they give you. Um, I happened to be at home. Well, what do you do when you're sick? You're at home, right? <laughs> and I was watching TV. They were giving out the Pulitzer Prizes. And, you know, when you're on these drugs, uh, not street drugs, of course, but, you know, drugs for cancer and so on, um, your mind doesn't always function the way you want it to. But I had this epiphany uh, when they gave out the prize, the Pulitzer Prize for poetry in it. I love poetry, by the way, and there's a couple of poetry books up there, but um, it just struck me that, wow, there's prizes for poetry, there's Academy Awards, there's Nobel Prizes. What about children? Just like that. And uh, being a researcher, as you know, I decided to go ahead and look into it, and I discovered that there was white space. Nobody was doing a recognition program that would recognize, award, and elevate people who were devoting their lives to children. And that was the genesis of the idea. I love it. And I know World of Children has now been around for 25 years, which is incredible. Yes. But could you explain what like those first couple of years were like? I know it was um, much different in those first couple of years to how it is now. Yeah. Well, the first couple of years were rather trying, of course, because anytime you start something new, uh, there are swings and roundabouts. There's a learning curve. Uh, at the time I began it, um, I, I partnered with an organization that took care of abused and battered children in Columbus, Ohio, because that's where I was living at the time. Uh, and I partnered with them because they had a, a footprint. I was on their board and they had a footprint. They had followers and they had donors and so on. And I didn't have access to that. And I was just recovering from cancer anyway. So um, I partnered with them and uh, made an agreement with them that we would call it the uh, Hannah Neal World of Children Awards. Uh, and we would uh, uh, give them any proceeds for their work because it was all for abused children. I thought it was a good thing. Um, we would give them any proceeds. So the first year uh, the event was held, uh, we didn't expect to earn much but the net proceeds were over $400,000. And that all went to the Hannah Neal Center. 
what happened thereafter was that they saw that this was a fun, you know, a really good, you know, funding opportunity. And they right. decided they wanted to go it alone without me. I said, fine, if that's what you want to do. But what they wanted to do is to make it just local, to make it a Columbus based uh, charity. And I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go ahead with World of Children as a global charity. You can do what you want. And so uh, we split off from them. And of course, World of Children now had its own footprint. And um, um, and we continued on that way. It was small at first. I mean, you know, now when we, the last year that we had open nominations, which was 2019, because 2020, 2021 were COVID. Right. And we, we were in hiatus then, and we can explain that later. But um, in 2019, we received 3,200 nominations. In the first year, we received four. <laughs> So, yeah, vast difference. And can you explain a little bit? Because I think it's so important of to what World of Children does, the process for applications for honorees and the process that they go through and how they're vetted. Yeah, I mean, that's really our signature. I mean, the thing that has not only kept us alive, but helped us grow and really differentiate us uh, from other organizations. And I, I need to focus on differentiation. You know, my background was at Procter & Gamble. Uh, in marketing and business development. And uh, one of the things you learn at a company like P&G is that you have to find two things, consumer need, right? And you have to find a point of differentiation. So the need was apparently there because nobody was identifying, recognizing and supporting small organizations. And then differentiation. And as we were building this, it became clear to me from my experience with other organizations and doing the research, that one of, one of the major things missing was quality because people would give away money without really checking if people were valid, were they doing good work with the money? Was it having an impact, were there outcomes? You know, if you invest your own money, you have money you invested, you expect the return on investment, right? Right. We now at World of Children taught the world to expect a return on investment, not in terms of dollars, but in terms of outcomes. Mm -hmm. And that was what we stood for. So one of the things we had to do was to be absolutely 100% certain that the people we were going to recognize and fund were the real deal. They were above reproach. They were not nefarious characters. They were not stealing money or anything like that or pedophiles. I mean, we're dealing with children. So um, what we decided to do was to hire an outside international security firm to do investigations on site, on the site for each of these people. Now, when you're dealing in the United States, doing an investigation is not that difficult. Right. But when you're in Zimbabwe or Nicaragua or in, uh, you know, Ghana, it's very difficult. And we hired this international firm, we pay them. Uh, they put feet on the ground, they go in and do a, an on-site investigation and they do a forensic audit to make sure that the people are totally above reproach. Now, people always ask me, well, that's a lot of money, isn't it? Yeah, it costs money. Why is it important? And I'm gonna give you some statistics which will explain that. In 25 years, we have had 37,000 nominations. We have selected 130 programs to support. 
if you assume that in that period there were 130 slots available through our very arduous process, which we can go into later, we 24 people who ended up at the top and could have been 24 programs that could have been funded by us and recognized by us failed the investigations. Right. That's 20%. 20% of our money and our effort and our heart and soul would have gone to nefarious characters, to people who were either pedophiles. We found some who were pedophiles. We found some who were just stealing the money, doing nothing with it. You know, we found all kinds of nefarious programs. And, and you know, it, my wife and I worked hard for our money and we give a lot of our money to this program. We don't want anybody's money. Whether you give us $10, 10,000, 10 million, we don't want it to go to waste. We want it to have an outcome. And the outcome is an impact, positive impact on children. So the investigative process became our signature and still is today. Yeah, I remember even at my time at World of Children, there were, you know, honorees or applicants that we were excited about who didn't pass that um, mm -hmm. investigation process. So it is really important. Um, so I know that the um, award ceremony started out small and eventually ended up um, on Park Ave. Can you explain, um, you know, how the organization grew and the impacts from that move? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, like any growth pattern for whether it's a for-profit business or not-for-profit, you go through periods of development. There are periods that are down periods and there are periods that are up periods. And you have to be able to uh, manage through both the good and bad times. You know, I had a mentor when I was a young man who told me that good time managers are a dime a dozen. Bad time managers are worth their weight in gold. <laughs> and uh, so we've been through good and bad times, and some of them are of our own doing, and others were of the economy, you know, the, the collapse of the economy in 2000 and, uh, 2000, and then in 2008. Those things, you know, we had to manage through them, and we did. Initially, we were in Columbus, Ohio, and then we realized that if we were going to have a global footprint, and if we were going to be recognized we had to get out of Columbus because as wonderful a city as it is, it's it's it doesn't get global and international attention, you know, uh, like a New York or Chicago or Los Angeles. So we moved to New York. And initially in New York, we started out very small. We had a small uh, gathering at Bergdorf Goodman's department store uh, because the CEO of Bergdorf Goodman was a friend of ours. <laughs> and had joined our board. And he said, okay, I'll have a little party. We'll have 30, 40 people. You know? And so we did it there. And then another friend of ours, who was the chancellor of the City University of New York, said, I'll also do a party for you. And so we did. We had another 30 or 40 people. So we had two parties going on, not, neither of them huge, raising very little money, um, if any. And they were uh, disparate, they had different groups of people coming. One was business people, the other were people from education and philanthropy. Um, and then uh, a friend, another friend, who was uh, uh, became the CEO of UNICEF USA, Carol Stern, um, said, hey, I love what you're doing. Uh, why don't we host something for you here at UNICEF headquarters? So we did. So now we had three events. <laughs> 
and it was very difficult to manage. So eventually we decided we had to take the big step and try to have one really major event in New York that was a major fundraiser. And, and we did. We, we moved to a, a facility on Park Avenue, as you mentioned. And the first year, um, you know, we, we just weren't sure we could do it. We thought we were going to lose money. Uh, we invested a couple of hundred thousand dollars to do it. And we thought if we make back that money, we'll be lucky. Turns out we brought in $700,000 that year and more than covered those 200,000. We wound up with $450,000 to give away to children. So it turned out to be worthwhile. And then from there, we continued to do that. And we did it every year um, at the same venue on Park Avenue until and 2019 was the last year because we were planning to do it 2020 and then COVID hit. Right. And you couldn't have events with COVID. Nobody was going to go to an event, you know, while COVID was raging, you know, and stand shoulder to shoulder with 500 other people right. breathing on them. And, you know, was it going to happen? Um, but the other thing we did was that uh, in, I think it was in 2015, we realized that the people who were coming to our events in New York always wanted to know what happened to the people they saw a few years ago. Now we were having kind of continuing people coming every year. So we decided to test something called a hero award, where we brought back a past honoree who had really done something special with the funds, again, investigated, and um, brought them back and, and gave them some more money and another recognition. And taught, they stood up and would tell the audience, thanks to you, here's what we've been able to do for children. Here's how we have elevated the lives of children. We found it to be incredibly emotional and it was very, very effective at drawing more money, you know, out of donors, you know, into the few, the new honorees. So we did that in New York for two or three years. And then we decided to hold a whole different event called the Heroes Awards in California, in Beverly Hills. And we did that for several years and that became a pretty successful event a little bit smaller than New York. In New York, we usually had 500 to 700 people. On Beverly Hills, we had about 250 to 350, 150, 350 people. But it was also very profitable and successful. So now we were bi-coastal and we had a big event in New York, big event in California, a couple of other events during the year. So what we were doing were we, was, we were raising over $2.5 million to give out to children in a year uh, before COVID. And yeah. then and then COVID basically shut us down. We had to go into hiatus because without events, we, we couldn't we didn't have a fundraising model that would work without events until now. And um, so what we did was we had to separate the entire staff. We had to shut our offices, but we did not shut down World of Children. What we did was uh, my wife and myself, one other board member, uh, and our board stayed with us. We decided what we would do during this period. We didn't know how long it was going to be. Nobody did back right. in March, April, May of 2020. Nobody had any idea how long this would be. It turned out to be two years and it's still going. Right. Um, what we decided to do was just, um, we were getting a lot of inquiries from our past honorees, you know, asking us if we could help them with COVID relief. Mm. And this is a story in itself, and I hope you don't mind if I digress into it. No, I'd love to hear it. 
during the early days of COVID, all the news said children were not being impacted because children did not get COVID at that time, right? It was not infecting them. But what people didn't understand was it was affecting them. Right. And the way it was affecting them was the following. Number one, education. Schools were closed. Children were not getting educated. Even though schools tried, teachers tried to do it online. If you had money and you had a home and you had three kids and you had three computers, you could possibly get your kids educated. If you lived in an 800 square foot apartment with three kids in New York and had only one computer, there was no way you were going to get three kids educated. And McKinsey, actually, the, the big consulting firm, did a big report on this after 2020, in which they pointed out that between 33 and 55 percent, I think I got the numbers right, of children failed to get educated in the United States during that period. Mm. Well, that was a problem in the United States. Globally, it was even worse. Right. Because Wi-Fi doesn't exist. It's very expensive. A lot of people don't have homes. They live in huts or in tents or in shacks. Um, children were not getting educated. So that was the first thing that was affecting children. The second thing that was affecting children is their parents were getting sick and dying. Or even if they didn't die, they were in hospitals for a long time. The children were left alone. Um, there were children who were being uh, subjected to predation. You know, uh, people were... Uh, stealing them, you know, forcing them into slavery, sex slavery, all kinds of horrible things. They had nobody to protect them. Right. right? Nobody understood this because everybody was focused on the hospitals where the adults were dying. And of course, that was horrible. You know, we were losing hundreds of thousands of people at a time. It was unprecedented. But because of that, the children wound up in the background and nobody was paying attention to and then the third thing that happened to children was food insecurity. Because parents were sick or not available, there was nobody to feed the children. Right. And, and children were starving around the world. And we were getting inquiries from our people saying, we don't know what to do. We can't feed the kids. You know, they're, 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 we have to get out to their homes because the parents can't come in. I mean, mm. it was a nightmare. So we decided to raise as much money as we could and try to attack those three things on whatever basis we could. So we were fortunate enough to be able to raise slightly over a million dollars in that period and distribute it you know, to smaller organizations. Uh, you know, did it have a huge impact? Probably had a huge impact on a few, on, on a hand, handfuls of children, not you know, in the grand scheme of things. You know, I wish we could have done more, but we're small. We can't, we can't compete with the Bill Gates of the world and the UNICEFs of the world. We have to do things on a small scale, one child at a time. So we were pleased that we were able to stay alive and, and distribute a little over a million dollars in COVID relief during that period. Well, yeah, and a million's a big deal too. So it's a great story of how, you know, World of Children pivoted during a hard time. Yeah. Um, so I know at one point you and Kay started visiting honorees um, why was that important to you to do? Well, that's a great question. And, and I, I can answer that in many ways, but the most succinct answer I can give you is this. The only thing that recharges our batteries is the smile of a child. And when we're not out there, we don't get the children's smiles. We don't see them. Right. 
So frankly, the last two years have been very painful for Kay and myself because we haven't been able to go anywhere. You know, even if we felt comfortable going there, we couldn't get into Ghana. We couldn't get, we couldn't even get into Canada for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, it was just, and, and it's still, it's better now, but still difficult. So we're starting to visit again, but for two years, we did not visit. The visits for us were important because of the smile of the child, but also we learned how much more these honorees were doing in the field than we really recognized because, you know, you know, they sent in a, a, a form, they filled it out. They told us some of what they were doing. We investigated those things. Yes, they were doing those. What we didn't know is how much more they were doing. Right. So that was really important. The other thing was we started taking donors and board members with us on the trips. And that had an amazing impact. People who gave us money realized where their money was going. And they, too, were recharged by the smile of a child. And all of a sudden, more money was coming in. So it was um, it was very important. It's, we're, go, we're planning now to restart that process in 2023. We're hoping to make two trips. Oh, awesome. 2023. But, you know, the other problem for us is we're getting older. You know, I'm 81 now. Kay is, well, she, I dare not say her age. But, <laughs> But uh, it's harder for us, you know, to do this. Uh, right. We have, you know, we have other family commitments here and, uh, you know, age does get in the way. We're going to try to do uh, two trips, but even if we can't, um, uh, board members and our new president will be doing them. Oh, nice. So the world of children will be out there. We hope we can be with them. If we can't, we can't. Is there um, a particular story that sticks out to you from one of your past trips visiting an honoree? There are so many. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a couple very briefly. The first one is we have an honoree in the Palestinian territories, Jericho, Ramallah, the West Bank of, uh, of the Middle East. Her name is Dr. Jumana Odeh. Dr. Odeh is a pediatrician. Many years ago, ago, she recognized that in her culture, children who are born with severe birth challenges, we used to call them uh, defects. We don't call them that anymore. But these are children who might have cerebral palsy. They might have um, Down syndrome. They might you know, uh, have other affectations. Um, very often, they were considered possessed of the devil and might be discarded by the parents. They might be discarded because the parents were concerned about, you know, about that. They were they possessed of them, or maybe just the parents couldn't cope with it. Right. it was, I mean, it, coping with a challenged child is a big, a big chore. So, I mean, Doctor Oda decided to intervene in that with a multi-pronged program. One was to evaluate the children and where possible, educate the parents and help them care for their children. Help them understand they are not possessed of the devil. These are real human beings. And she was very successful at that because she's in their culture. She understands the culture. You know, somebody like me or you, we don't understand that culture, right? And and we we wouldn't know where to begin, but of course she does. And she did a great job of that. And then she realized there were children who could not be cared for well at home. 
So she created a facility called the Palestinian Happy Children's Center, where the children could be either live or be there all, you know, when parents couldn't handle them. And it was a, it's very humane, wonderful place. Kay and I visited along with some board members and donors. We met this little girl whose mother was just, uh, I don't know how to describe it. She was so grateful. She was crying, tears mm. in her eyes. They had told her her child was disposable. Well, World of Children believes no child is disposable. But in that culture, they could have been. And Dr. Ode said, not so much. Let me see what we can do. That child today is totally functional. She's not gonna, she's not gonna be a Mensa Society child, but she's able to communicate. We were having lunch with, with the families. This little girl, five years, seven, six years old, got up on the table and sang the song for us. Mm. I I still cry when I think about it. I can't tell you. I've got goosebumps sitting here. The emotion uh, that that created in me and how grateful I was to Dr. Odeff for saving this little girl. Right. At the end of that visit, another thing happened that was a seminal moment in my life. Dr. Oda invited us to her mother's house for tea before we were leaving the, the uh, West Bank. So all of us trekked over to her mother's house. Her mother had a lovely home. Uh, family was reasonably well-to-do. I mean, not exorbitantly so, but reasonably well-to-do. Now you have to remember, this is a very devout Muslim family. I'm a Jew and a man. And we were there. They treated us beautifully. Her brothers were there. Dr. Ode was there. Her mom was there and a couple of other people. At the end of the tea, Dr. Ode came up to me and said, I have a request. And I said, anything you want. She said, my mother would like to give you a hug. Mm. Now, you have to stop and think about, this is a devout Muslim woman. Right. Wanting to hug a non-related Jewish man. I'll never forget that moment. Never. What it proves is that love and caring can transcend cultures, can transcend anything. The only way to do it is through love and caring. And um, it was a seminal moment in my life. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I still think about that all the time, and I tell the story all the time. I'll give you one other uh, story. It's not as uplifting. It's a sad one. We were in Southeast Asia visiting an honoree, and, and this honoree was rescuing girls from sexual slavery. And he had, I'm trying to remember, I think a dozen girls in his program at that time. And Kay and I, my wife and I, went there and uh, we were there alone at that time because the rest of the team was linking up with us the next day. And we went to visit these girls and we were sitting on the ground. They, they don't have, the facilities are austere, but they're, they're clean and they're safe. We're sitting on the ground and these 10 girls, 12 girls, the girls could not even look at us, could not look in our eyes. 
They were so damaged. What they had been through had, I mean, is mm. something we, you know, we can hear about, but we can't process. And only one of them was willing to tell, you know, what happened to her. She was crying through the whole thing about how many uh, men she had to serve in a day and the horrible things she had to do. And sadly, now she had sexually transmitted disease because that's what happens to these girls. They threw this girl out in the street when she became pregnant and um, she wound up getting, uh, she was only 15, 14. Huh. Of course, there was no abortion opportunity. She tried to deliver the child, wound it up with fistulas, were a horror, which are a horrible fate. Most people don't know what they are, but fistulas are damages to young women uh, that happen when the they're not ready to deliver a child. Mm. And it creates an opening between the urethra and the anal passage into the vagina. And what happens is, first of all, the child didn't survive. But the other thing that happens is now this young woman was leaking fecal material and urine through her vagina 100% of the time. It's almost like being a... Um, you know, a, a pariah, you know, you want to see it. Our, our honoree got surgery to, to fix it. Surgery is possible and it can be repaired, but most of these girls don't have access to surgery, right? They can't afford it. Our honoree had had this done. So she was very damaged and listening to her story was painful, but the other girls, they couldn't even look at us. I mean, we were there for an hour and a half. We shared lunch with them. The pain and suffering in their eyes was traumatic. And, you know, I bless this man for taking care of them and getting them out of that and for educating them, getting them the medical care they need, psychological counseling. But, you know, the question is, will can these young people ever be uh, whole, whole members of society with the fears and horrors that they had to face? I don't know the answer to that question. I know yeah. psychologically when treated well and properly, some can overcome it. I just, it makes me worry. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's incredible that that is the one girl who is willing to share her story. It just yeah. makes me think of like how dark the other stories must have been, but um, it's so great that the honoree, I mean, taking on so much darkness, like really living, you know, and, and that's what we that. stand for. Lizzie. We stand for this because look, he only had 10, 12 girls in his care, but, and I'm sure there are many more. Right. Girls. But our philosophy, as I mentioned before, is no child is disposable. And the other thing you, you heard me say a hundred times is the way we change the world is one little hand by one little hand and one little heart by one little heart. We can't change every child. We, I wish we could. You know, I wish we could. I wish we had the facility, the capability to do it. But even if you're Bill Gates or UNICEF, you can't. The, the statistics are outrageous. But to do nothing, to do nothing is absolutely not acceptable. We are blessed. We have a chance. If we can save one child, 12 girls here, 40 girls, who were uh, who lost their families to the genocide in Rwanda and now are grown women living a, a, a great life. I sleep at night because of that. 
Yeah. Yeah. There'll always be more work to do, but if everyone, you know, does something, then we will get somewhere. Um, I wanted to get your, your input um, on the podcast. We focus on founders of small nonprofits and obviously um, world of children is honored um, over 130 and you've met a lot of founders of organizations. Um, what are some of the things that you've seen make an organization impactful? Well, what makes it impactful is the commitment of the person who really has to give up their life to do this. Um, you know, I can, I can give you, a, let me give you one important example, and then I'll digress and give you the re answer to the rest of your question. Ricardo Benun in Buenos Aires, Argentina, he was the uh, plastic surgeon to the rich and famous in Buenos Aires. He was educated in, uh, at the Hadassah Hospital in Israel, at Yale University in, in the United States, world-renowned re world plastic surgeon. He was making a ton of money, was living a big life. One day he woke up and he said to his then wife, I hate this. I can't do this anymore. This isn't what I trained for. You know, I'm done with tummy tucks and breast lifts and facelifts and butt lifts and all that. I, I want to help kids. And he gave up his practice completely, used all his money and opened a clinic in the worst barrio of Argentina, of Buenos Aires, to help children who needed plastic surgery to restore their lives. They were born with, you know, cleft lip, cleft palate, hair lip. They were born with three thumbs, no fingers, you know, all kinds of things that plastic surgeons can repair. And he, uh, that's what he did. When we had first honored him, he had handled 4,000 children. He's now handled 14,000. He's getting on in age, had to slow down. Of course, COVID slowed everybody down, including right. him. Uh, when he made this decision, eventually his wife left him because she couldn't live the big life anymore that she wanted to be. She was no longer, you know, uh, in the center of the class society of Buenos Aires. And um, fortunately, he met another woman, got remarried. She's an OBGYN. And now she's also in the program mm -hmm. helping women with their, you know, with their OBGYN issues. So um, it's a wonderful story. What does it take? Every one of the honorees that we have had has a story. And their commitment is absolutely incredible. And I'm going to give you another one, which help, helps to define what it takes. This is a woman from India. Her name is Triveni Acharya. Triveni is a journalist, and she was doing a story in one of the uh, uh, kind of bad areas of, uh, of Delhi. And uh, she saw this little girl sitting on the corner and crying. Turned out the girl was 10 years old. She looked horrible. And Treveni went up there and asked her why she was there. And what, where's, where's her home? And why was she crying? And she tried to talk to her. And the girl wouldn't answer. And finally, the girl pointed to a, a room up above. And she said, that's where I am. And she said, well, is your mom and dad there? Said, no, I worked there. She was uh, prostituted. She was 
she was forced into sex slavery. And anyway, Treveni was horrified by this. She went home and talked to her husband, who was um, uh, all, uh, uh, kind of, I don't remember if he was a journalist or a political leader, something like that. And they decided they were going to go back there and rescue this girl. So they got a friend of theirs who was a policeman. He was off duty and they got him and they went to this place to rescue this girl. They had no idea what they were going to do with her when they rescued her, but they thought they'd bring her back to their homes. When they got there, they found 13 girls, all like her and all being prostituted and all in horrible shape. Well, they took all 13 of them to their house. They had a small apartment, you know. She said, we had a three bedroom apartment. And now I had 13 girls. <laughs> Um, they started that they went out and rented a, a facility and started helping the girls. The girls lived there. They had to take care of their own home, but they, you know, they had police presence to take care of them. They provided psychological counseling, education, uh, job training, and uh, so that the girls would not have to go back on the street as prostitutes. It was a wonderful program. A few years later, but they kept raiding brothels. Every week or two, they would raid a brothel. There's so many of them in India. They kept raiding them, and they'd get six more girls, 10 more girls, two more girls, and bring them back. One day, her husband's coming home from work, and the pimps caught him in the street and shot him dead. Killed him in the street. Well, of course, Treveni was left alone. We met her in New York. This was after her husband was shot. And I asked her a very simple question. I said, Treveni, you keep doing this. I mean, Treveni is less than five feet tall. If she weighs 90 pounds, it's a lot. <laughs> I said, Treveni, aren't you frightened that they're going to kill you? You know what her answer was? I've lived my life. These girls haven't had a chance. Hmm. You want to know what it takes to be one of these people? Talk to Treveni Acharya. That's what it takes. Yeah, it's a life commitment for sure. Yeah. And absolute, you know, uh, lack of fear. Right. You know, if you want, I can give you one more story of lack of fear and how it can change people. Do you want to hear it? Sure, yeah. We honored a, uh, with our youth award a young man from Uganda, Aniwa Ricky Richard. Um, Ricky was... 11 years old when the warlords, the uh, People's Liberation Army, they were called, uh, came to his village and took all the young boys, burned all their homes, killed all their parents. He had to watch his parents burned alive in their home. They took them, they beat them, they forced them to be soldiers, rape and pillage and kill. And Ricky had to do that for about two years. And finally, he just had it and he tried to escape. He got away, but he got caught. Well, they beat the hell out of him, and he had to do all this again, but eventually he escaped again. That's courage, right? Mm -hmm. And eventually he got to the safe part of Uganda. He got a job, sent himself through school, got a college degree, and then went back to rescue children from the Lord's Resistance Army. When we honored him, brought him to New York, I was sitting with him in a hotel room. We were talking to him. And we said, Ricky, you know, this must have been hellacious for you. How, how did you have the courage to go back there? He stood up 
he lifted the back of his shirt and he showed me the scars from the whipping and beating that he had mm. to take. I mean, uh, again, I have goosebumps. If you saw what his back looked like, you would just throw up. I mean, it was how he survived that. I don't know. But again, you want to know what it takes? Treveni, Aniwar, Ricardo, every one of them is a story like that. Every one of them. Yeah. It's that, a real story of courage. Yes, for sure. Yes. Thanks for sharing those stories too. I love hearing them. Um, well, as we mentioned, World of Children is celebrating its 25th anniversary. I would love to hear what you're excited about for the future of the organization. Okay, good. First of all, we had to figure out a funding model. Events were not going to happen again, as I mentioned. Around the country, around the United States and Canada, there are organizations called community community foundations. There's a community foundation where I live in Rancho Santa Fe. There's one in San Diego. Wherever you live, there's probably one as well. Uh, most cities of any size have a community foundation. Community foundations are places where people of wealth can put money that they want to use to help the community and it can be used for the arts, for infrastructure, for medical care, for, for children, for adults, for Alzheimer's, whatever they want. And they can put this money in this organization and the organization, and, and they tell the organization, well, look, I'm gonna put $10 million in here in an endowment. And I would like for you to manage it. I want the money to go to the arts. You pick the arts, you do the back room work and so on. And these are, that's what this organization will do. And they will pick the arts to fund. They'll do the, the background checks. They will distribute the funds and they will account for them to the donor, even though once the donor gives the money, you no longer, he or she no longer controls that money. There are over 800 of these in the United States and Canada. The focus of them is regional. They tend to be in a, a city, a county, a state. They rarely do stuff outside of their community. Well, you know, World of Children has always broken ground. We found the white space. I told you that before. So we were sitting around with one of our board members and hypothesizing what to do. And she said, you know, maybe we should talk to the community foundation here and find out what they do. And we said, okay. So we talked to them and we found out that they do what they do and all the others do what they do, but nobody does it on a global basis. So we hypothesized, and we hope it'll work, we don't know yet, we're just starting, that we would create a global community foundation, but the community would not be geographical, it would be the cohort of children. Hmm. So World of Children is now World of Children Global Community Foundation. We just initiated this in April. We are now what? April, May, June, July, we're in the fifth month. We just got our first major commitment for a million dollars. Wow. Um, we have also raised another half a million beyond that. And we're up and running. If this is successful, it will be groundbreaking, not just for us, but for the whole not-for-profit NGO sphere, because it opens a whole new uh, avenue you know, of a function. So let's say somebody is interested in 
you know, in uh, Alzheimer's. And they want to form a global community foundation around Alzheimer's. Once we've proven that it works, they can do that. We'll have the, you know, we'll have the footprint. We can tell them how to do it. We can teach right. them how to do it. We're happy to do it because, you know, we don't deal with Alzheimer's, right? We deal with children. You know, somebody wants to do a global community foundation around, um, you know, around uh, uh, women's health. Fine. Great. We'd be delighted to help them figure it out once we figure it out, <laughs> which is what we're doing now. So that's what we're doing. As I say, we just last week got our first commitment for a million dollars, which will be announced in a couple of weeks once we get all the I's dotted and T's crossed and all of that. Uh, and it will be for uh, to, to help fund our protection area, which is mm. protecting children from trafficking, from uh, slavery, from abuse, and et cetera. And it's designed for that, that genre of, um, of care. So um, that's what we're planning to do. Uh, we've hired a president who uh, is leading this charge. She's terrific. Um, uh, a woman who's been in the not-for-profit sphere for a long time. In fact, we tried to hire her a couple of years ago, but she had decided she, had, she was a single mom. And then her kids went off to college and she decided to go back to Oxford in London and get a, a master's in business. Wow, that's awesome. She came back and is now our president. That's so, great. And one of our board members who's, Kay and I know we need to transition out of this because of our age. Uh, not just because we're old, but because we're not up to date with the technology. You know, I, I used to be really up and at him when it came to marketing. I mean, you know, I worked at P&G, I worked at Esmark. Today, I don't understand marketing because it's all, you know, uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And now there are a dozen other platforms I never even heard of right. there. So it's it's really beyond us. So one of our younger board members, whose name is Molly Eldridge, she's 56, 57. Uh, she's right age, very smart, very successful, um, you know, had her own business, ran her own business. Family is very philanthropic, and she loves World of Children. Been on board for seven years, and she wants to take this over. And she is going to be the next Harry and Kay. Mm, that's wonderful. And uh, our hope is that we can fully transition to her leadership uh, next year, 2023, and Kay and I can become kind of emeritus of council, you know, what old people do. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I love hearing that update and it's exciting. I'm, I'll have to it is. stay it is. tuned. Successful. I mean, we'll know within, I think within 12 to 18 months, we'll have an answer as to whether this works or not. Well, it certainly sounds like you're off on the right foot. Um, I would definitely want to give you a chance to let um, listeners know how they can help. Well, obviously the best way to help is to go to our website at www.worldofchildren.org. Uh, there are opportunities there. You know, uh, of course, funding is the most important thing we need right now, but we also need volunteers. Uh, if you're willing to volunteer, just go, go to the website and send a note saying, I'd like to volunteer and tell us how, what your skill sets are, and what kind of time frame you have and where you are. 
we talked before about if everybody does something, the world's a better place. Not everybody can give money. We understand that. But everybody, almost everybody, has some skill, time. They have something to give. Let me give you an example, because examples are far better than just my talking. When my daughter graduated from veterinary school, she had, like most students do, some debt. Um, she was a new veterinarian. She didn't have a lot of money. And she was working for another vet. And she said, Dan, I'd like to do something like you do, but I don't know what to do. So I said, let me ask you a question. Can you go to the, like Ricardo did, to the burial? You know, she was where she was living at the time, which was Kansas City. I said, can you go to the, you know, the downscale neighborhood and on Saturday morning, hold a free clinic for the pets? These kids have pets. They can't take them to the vets. too expensive. She said, that's a brilliant idea. She started doing it one Saturday a month and ended up doing it every Saturday. <laughs> that's awesome. And that's how she gave back. Everybody, the point is, everybody can do something if you're willing to take the time and effort. Money is important. And by the way, especially for an organization like ours, you know, $10, $15, $50. One thing I didn't mention is that 100% of the donations we get go back to children because our board of governors, another thing that this differentiates us, our board of governors pays 100% of the overhead. So the salaries, office expense, all of that's paid by our board. So no matter what anybody gives us, if you go on the website, donate 5, 10, 15, 50, 100, 1,000, I don't care, whatever it is, you can be 100% sure it's going to children and it's going to children's organizations that have been vetted and proven to be effective. 100% sure. Nobody else in this industry can give you that guarantee. Nobody else. But we do. So yeah, you can help in a lot of ways. You can help with money. You can help with time. You can help with skill. So there are a lot of things. Just go to the website. And if you want to volunteer, just send us a note um, and uh, tell us what you want to do. Tell us how much time you have, where you live, what your skill set is. And we'll try to find something for you to do to help us and help children. Awesome. Well, thank you, Harry. It was great having you on. Thank you, Lizzie. It's great to be with you and to see you again. And Thank you so much for listening to Waves of Change podcast. I'm your host, Lizzie Lara. I would love if you would follow or subscribe our podcast, or would you leave a rating or review? Five stars is our favorite. That would help others find us, and we'd really appreciate it. If you are active on social media, please follow us at Waves of Change podcast on Instagram. Even more, if you would share this episode on your stories, that would be wonderful. If you have suggestions or want to recommend an organization I should interview, email us at wavesofchangepod, P-O-D, at gmail.com. Thank you. I'll see you next time.